The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Charlie Steffel is with us. He is a true songwriting storyteller, although he's probably most known for the songs he wrote which others recorded. He has a very distinct voice. He is a singer, songwriter, instrumentalist, and recording artist. But going back to the songs that he's written, some of the artists who have recorded his work would include Eddie Arnold, Garth Brooks, Leanne Womack, George Jones, Blake Shelton, the Del McCoury Band, and others. We're honored to have him here on the Paul Leslie Hour, and you can support our show by going to patreon.com slash the Paul Leslie Hour. Charlie Stevel, thank you very much for making the time to talk to us. Well, thank you, Paul. I'm glad to be here, honored to be here with you. It's a great pleasure. So what's going on in the world of Charlie Steffel these days? Well, these days I've been writing with uh, Tom Utes, uh, who is uh, an artist on uh, Mountain Home Records out of Asheville, North Carolina. And that's J-U-T-Z. Utes, he just signed uh, a few months ago, and they've given us the uh, second single, Jimmy Rogers Rode a Train. And uh, I'm trying to uh, hope Tom will release another song we wrote uh, commemorating our horrible flood here in Nashville that we had in 2010. It's called The Flood of 2010. So I think that might, they might release that in 2020 as a 10-year anniversary of that horrible flood we had here. It was a uh, one of those 100-year floods that uh, destroyed a good part of the city. Ryman Auditorium was flooded. Our Spermerhorn uh, Symphony Center was flooded. Groon's guitars. Uh, it was a mess. And uh, But Tom Utes is, uh, he's just written, we've written so many songs together over the last uh, probably 15 years. Uh, he used to play with Nancy Griffith, and uh, we got to know each other through that. So where are you from originally? Well, I I come from a world of uh, Vic Crowell's in 78s and 45s, but, uh, you know, uh, I'm fairly into my older years here, but uh, <laughs> I chased around all over the place when I was younger. But I, I'd say uh, I've been here 35, 36 years now in Nashville, but my roots are kind of like a mangrove tree, you know, they're all over the place. Uh, uh, southwestern Pennsylvania, South Central Texas, and East Texas, and Western Kentucky, and, and now Middle Middle Tennessee for the last many years. I don't know if it's been a, to my detriment or to my benefit, but I've spent more than half my life here in Nashville. <laughs> I, I love it. So when did you first realize that you had this ability to write songs? Well, when I was in high school, I, I started writing songs. I uh, my sister had gotten a guitar for Christmas, and I appropriated it from her. She didn't seem really interested. It was an old gut string guitar, and I just uh, I got uh, one of those books, Teach Yourself How to Play, kind of like the big note song book, and learned a few old traditional songs, and then I decided that I could write my own. I, I wanted to give it, give it a shot and wrote a few stupid corny teenage love songs and uh, I just I just kept writing and writing and, and never stopped and I, now there's a difference you know I, I knew I could write songs but 
how good they were, that's a, that's a whole different story. And I think when I finally moved to Nashville and got into the world of professional songwriting and heavy hitters, you know, Harlan Howard and so many wonderful writers here, Hank Cochran and Buddy Cannon, and, and I just had to really up my game. And that's when I really learned about how to write a, a you know, a decent song, an important song, a song with some meaning, not just a sentimental, silly song. Not that there's not a place for those as well. So I've just been writing all along ever since I was a kid. It's still a lot of fun. When you came to Nashville, who was the first songwriter that you met? Well, they we have an organization here with two organizations, the Songwriter Guild, Songwriters Guild and Nashville Songwriters Association International. And I began meeting writers and playing songs that they would have critiques and you would take a cassette. This is back in the days of cassettes. You'd take a cassette of one of your songs in and then a group of professionals, professional writers would critique them. So I got to meet uh, a lot of the pros that way. I was in ASCAP, one of the performance rights organizations. They had a Thursday night writers program uh, from all the writers that sent in songs, they selected 40 writers, and I was lucky enough to be selected. And that's how I really got in touch with other writers. Bob Doyle, who manages Garth Brooks now and has uh, since the late 80s, was then working at ASCAP, and he asked me if I was affiliated with a PRO, and I said no. And he, he asked me to come in and bring some more songs, which I did. So the first co-writer that I wrote a co-written song with is Dale Allen. And uh, the second writer was a guy uh, you might have heard of by the name of Garth Brooks. So I was uh, right there in the fire, in the middle of the fire. But Garth was an unknown writer at the time. And uh, I can tell you how I met him and everything here whenever you want to hear that. But uh, <laughs> that, would, that would be the first uh, co-writing sessions that I ever had. There was a name you mentioned in there, Bob Doyle, and mm-hmm. I wish I had money for every time his name came up on this show. He's someone, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he has intersected in the path of a lot of people in Nashville, and I'm very curious to know, what is Bob Doyle, the man himself, like? Well, I'll tell you, Bob, he's a drummer, so he has musical ability and talent, but he's never really put that to, you know, out there for people to hear. I've heard him drum and he's good. We played together out at Larry Bastion's in California, but uh, as a person, he's uh, one of the kindest, most honest individuals I've ever met. And he was instrumental in me becoming a professional songwriter. So I owe him a deep debt of gratitude. He let me right there at Major Bob, his publishing company, after he left ASCAP and formed his own company, which was a management and publishing company. And I wrote there, he gave me the opportunity to write there for years and really uh, meet some of the greatest writers, uh, Dwayne Blackwell and Larry Bastian and on and on. And it was just such a wonderful experience. Uh, he's a, he's a, just a great, great person. I still see Bob from time to time and, uh, He's not changed a bit. Uh, he's still still the same great guy. 
and he loves music and he loves songwriters and and he still uh, is listening to songs. Uh, I sent one of my friends over to see him not too long ago that I thought was a really talented individual by the name of Conrad Fisher. You know, I always think of that old George Jones uh, song, Who's Gonna Fill Their Shoes? And I always, if I see someone or come upon someone that I think warrants it, I, I and I'll tell you, Conrad's, I think, the only person I've ever sent over to Bob, so keep an eye out for him. He's on YouTube and really entertaining young fella. And say his name one more time for the listeners. Sure. Conrad Fisher. Conrad Fisher. F-I-S, yeah, F-I-S-H-E-R. He's got a lot of videos. He writes mostly by himself. We've co-written a few songs together, but most of his stuff he does himself, and he has real nice videos on there of him playing his songs, and he's like all uh, young struggling writers here in town he's trying to find his place and uh he is definitely a traditional country singer traditional in the it's hard to describe more in a folk country genre type of music and that's the kind that i'm that, that i moved here for for the, for the stuff that i loved growing up jimmy rogers and uh, Hank Williams, of course, and and then my Texas friends, uh, Towns Van Zant, Nancy Griffith, and Guy Clark, all of those. So I think Conrad has a lot of that in him, and that's what made his music attractive to me. And he's a good guy to boot. Were there ever times along the way where you were doubting yourself? <laughs> oh, yes. Every day I wake up. I doubt myself. I mean, it's it's a this is the major leagues, and this is a huge competition here. And doubt is a great motivator. So yes, I I do. <laughs> <laughs> Even as we sit here, <laughs> doubt is a great motivator. Tell me a little more about that. That's interesting. Well, it motivates me anyway because I always am trying to improve. Uh, my writing, and like I said, it's a heavy, highly competitive atmosphere here, so I just use it as a, I can prove prove that I can have nothing to doubt, I guess, <laughs> would be what I'm trying to do, prove to myself that, hey, don't worry, and write a song, shut up and write a song, and, and that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying that the the best response to doubt is just to keep moving. Absolutely. <laughs> Move forward. Absolutely. Don't let it, uh, I know it cripple, it can cripple you. If you, you can be crippled by doubt, self doubt. And that's the last thing in a business like this. And it is a business. I mean, it's an art and it's a business and you have to keep the business part in mind as well. It, you always have to be moving forward in, in, in this particular environment it's not what you've done but what you're doing now and you know that's an old cliche but it's true <laughs> there was a singer songwriter peter mayer and i asked him what do you do what's the ritual how do you write a song and he said and he was being very serious well the first thing you do is you start to brew coffee Ah, my answer in exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I I would have to say that's the first thing: a full pot of coffee, <laughs> and it it really helps. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
it really helps. It's a great motivator. Are there any other rituals or methods that you like to employ when writing songs? Um, well, I like to have ideas before I go into a, uh, if I'm co-writing with someone, I like to have some ideas ready and, uh, either melodic or just some sort of chord structure or maybe a whole song idea for a melody or a lyrical idea in search of a melody or a lyrical idea in search of a real song. You know, sometimes you just have an idea for a title. So a lot of times, if I'm writing with Tom Utes, for example, we've written, gosh, we've written probably 200 songs together over the years. He'll either have a verse or two written, or I'll have a verse or two written, or a chorus, and we'll sit down together, and if I feel that I can contribute to what he has, we'll go with that. And if, Likewise, if he feels he can contribute to what I have down, uh, we'll work on that And... It's different with every writer, of course. But, uh, yeah, that full pot of coffee, that's that's the best answer. <laughs> I have the exact same ritual when I do an interview. There you go. I, <laughs> I have it right here in front of me, as a matter of fact. Not the pot, just a cup. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us about the first time you heard a song you wrote on the radio? Yes, I, I remember it like it was yesterday, and it was, good grief, probably you know, I, I, back in the uh, early 90s, uh, what's that, 25 years ago, I guess, 26 years ago, I was driving down the street, and with Garth and I had written a song called Walk Outside the Lines, and played it for Bob Doyle, and Bob took it next door. There was a studio there at 1111. That's where 17th Avenue South, that's where Bob Doyle's office is now. But there was a studio then, and Marshall Tucker Band happened to be cutting that day. So he went in there and played that song that we had written, and they recorded it that day on the spot, and it became uh, the next single from Marshall Tucker Band. They did a video on it. It's called Walk Outside the Lines. And the video is still up on YouTube. It's kind of grainy, but because it's so old. But this, I love the song. I still play it out, and it's it's just a fun song. And that was the first time I ever heard it on my car radio. And uh, it's I just kept driving. I didn't pull over or anything. <laughs> I was in traffic, but uh, it it was uh, just wonderful, wonderful feeling to know that something you've done is finally achieving some level of success. You can't help but smile, I bet, when you start to hear and, and recognize, oh, that's my song. Amen. That's for <laughs> sure. And it's, <laughs> you can't beat that feeling. This might be a tough one, but who do you think did the best version of one of the songs that you wrote or co-wrote, and why? Okay. Okay. I'll have to preface this with a, every... every uh, song that I've heard interpreted by another artist that I've written is my favorite, but I'll have to, I'm going to have to point out one that I think really took the song beyond what it was, how it was written. And, and it's called all aboard. And Del McCurry has released it on four of his albums, Del McCurry band. And the way we had written it, I wrote this with uh, Gene Ellsworth and Bradley Rogers, Brad Rogers. And we had it as slow blues and that's how I recorded it on my own CD. And 
it was cool, but Dell heard it and uh, liked it and recorded it up-tempo bluegrass, and it just took the song, it took it from a slow blues to a bluegrass, and, and it blew my mind the first time I heard it, and that has to be uh, one of my all-time favorites. He still plays it in concert, and uh, another one, uh, Blake Shelton recorded What I Wouldn't Give that, that I uh, co-wrote with Tommy Carlos and uh, Charlie Brown. And he just did a fantastic version of that. It was not a single, but you can hear it on YouTube as well, What I Wouldn't Give. It's on his album, Pure BS, and uh, it went gold and just great feeling to hear that. But I, I, it's really hard for me to sing a lot of song. I mean, Leanne Womack, full gee whiz, I don't think anyone could ever top that or of course Garth <laughs> can't it's hard hard for me to just come in and pinpoint one that's my absolute favorite interpretation that's kind of a wishy-washy answer I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> no it's all right I was listening to your version of the fool and I've heard the Leanne ah. Womack version what inspired that song well, that's an interesting question because that's one of those roundabout songs that took a while to get written. Marla Cannon Goodman had, uh, I'm sorry, Gene Ellsworth. Those, those are my two co-writers on that one, Marla and Gene. And Gene had a melody and he put it down on a cassette and we, you know, Marla listened to it. I wasn't involved yet. And it just, kind of fell under her car seat for a while, for a couple months. And one day she hit the brakes and the cassette came flying out under her feet. So she picked it up and put it in the cassette player in the car and listened and started playing it over and over. And she came up with this. I'm the fool in love with the fool who's still in love with you idea. So we started with that and that melody and that, that phrase, which was turned out to be the, the, you know, hook or a refrain or chorus, whatever you want to call it. And uh, we, uh, they called me up one day in the afternoon and we went over to Marla's house and we wrote that there on the spot. They had a different set of lyrics that they were working with. It wasn't really working for them. And so we went kind of a different direction and uh, came up with what we have and then met her sister, Melanie Cannon, who's a wonderful singer as well. These are Buddy Cannon's daughters. Melanie did the demo for us. We did a full band demo and a piano demo. The piano was Barry Walsh uh, playing piano. And I think that's the one that Leanne heard when Major Bob pitched that to her. And the next thing we knew, we were doing a video on the song, which is also on YouTube. <laughs> and uh, I, I got to be there when they did the video which was really cool and that's how it came to be but it, it took uh, took a while for it to actually happen and for the record i absolutely love it when i have a songwriter on and they just kind of break into song like that that was really cool <laughs> <laughs> oh well thanks i i do want to add one thing to that larry bastion the great he's written so many of garth's hits uh, rodeo and unanswered prayers and things. Larry lives in California and we would often make, go out to Larry's or Larry would come to Nashville, him and his wife, Myrna. And Larry heard our version of the song when we thought we had finished it. 
And he said, why don't you do this? Just a little tweak. And he said, this is my gift to you guys. And he didn't want writer's credit, but I have to give credit where credit's due. Larry, he probably sewed that baby up, you know, and, and delivered the, the package for us that uh, would become the final, the, the final uh, demo that we would present to, to Leanne and uh, Frank Liddell, our producer. And Larry Bastian is an underappreciated songwriter, but he, if you look him up, he's, he's incredible. B-A-S-T-I-A-N. And just so much of a wonderful uh, songwriter and person. Wonderful person, him and his wife, Myrna. Beautiful people. Absolutely. And as you said, a very underrated songwriter, Larry mm-hmm. Bastian. Absolutely. I also, I have to say this just because you have to promote yourself every now and again. Mm-hmm. If they want to find out more about Larry Bastian, pretty much the only in-depth interview you're going to find of him is from this show. Go back to episode number 13, and you'll spend a, f- a full hour with the great Larry Bastian. <laughs> oh, I have to hear that. That's great. Thanks for letting me know about that. <laughs> And he's also featured prominently in Garth's uh, anthology, that that first book he put out, uh, part one, anthology part one, the first five years. I'm putting a plug in for that book because I'm in there too. (laughs) But uh, Larry's, uh, he's done so much for all of us. Well, that's a good opportunity to talk about this. I recall one time it just so happened to be raining And I was listening to the very, very first Garth album on CD. I was listening to the Garth Brooks album. And there's a song that you co-wrote every time that it rains. And I listened Mm -hmm. to it, and something about it, it just struck me. After it played, I backed it up, I played it again. It played, I backed it up, I played it again. So tell us a little bit about that. Can you recall writing the song every time that it rains? Absolutely. And that was my second cut, which was, I mean, Garth was an unknown artist at the time. And every time the rains came about, we had written a number of songs. We had our, I mean, our Marshall Tucker band song and several others we had written. And Garth called me up one night. Uh, We lived uh, close by to each other over in Englewood. And it was probably 10.30 or 11 and I was getting ready to knock it off for the day. And phone rings, it's Garth. And he said, hey, man, Ty is Ty England, his old roommate from Oklahoma State. Ty's here, and uh, Ty and I have an idea for a song. And we'd like you to help us. I said, okay, I'll be right over. So got there about 11. And uh, we sat there all night long working on that till 4.30, 5 o'clock the next morning. And still hadn't finished it. But that night we went out. It might have been the next night. We got together the next night, too. But so long ago, it was probably the second night. We went out walking in Garth's neighborhood. And the three of us. And it was so cool because the way Garth describes it in his book, uh, that first book. You know, we were just three guys out there. Not a fear in the world, and I forget exactly how to want to quote him on it, but uh, it was just so nice uh, to have that be included on his album. But we came back in after walking around 
the neighborhood for a while and finished it off. There was the song. And Garth played it for Bob the next day, and Bob really liked it. And then they took it in with Alan Reynolds and Mark Miller and, and uh, recorded it and put it on the album, and it just happened like that. <laughs> Can you recall your first meeting with Garth Brooks? What was your first impression of him? Yes. Absolutely. And it, it happened at the Bluebird Cafe. And on the Mon- uh, Barbara Cloyd has a Monday night uh, open mic writer's night. Uh, still still going on. Many years later, still going on. You go down there and you sign up. That's how you did it then. I think you do it by phone now. But uh, signed up and Garth happened to be there as well that same evening. And so we got up and played. And when he got up to sing, he, uh, which one of them will which one of them, I think, was the first song I heard him sing. That's on on uh, the uh, anthology, one of the uh, discs in there includes that song. And uh, I can't remember the other song he played that night, but uh, I was blown away by his voice and his demeanor. And I went over to him, and I had a, while I was listening to him, I was writing down some ideas of who might can help him in town. And Bob Doyle's name was one of them. And I took the list over to him. I said, here, I introduced myself. And he he said, oh, man, yeah, uh, yeah, well, maybe we can get together and write one of these days. I said, okay, we'll do that. And I gave him my phone number. And he had already met Bob Doyle, by the way. <laughs> so that was just another endorsement. But anyway, the next Monday night, he was there. And the next Monday night, he was there again, but we were going to a baseball game that night, but we stopped in the Bluebird, and my son Leon went over to him, and he was about four at the time, and he said, we're going to play baseball, and Garth really liked, he's good with kids, and he he loved, Le- loved Leon, Leon's uh, in his 30s now, and has has uh, married, and has my grandchild, my granddaughter, and one of my granddaughters, and so... I didn't hear from Garth again for about eight months. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, he called and he said, man, I didn't want to call you until I had a a writing deal. And Bob Doyle just opened his own publishing company over here. He left ASCAP, why don't you come over and we'll we'll write. So we got got on a regular Monday schedule for a while. And that's how we came up with Walk Outside the Lines on one of those writing sessions. Although I do recall Walk Outside the Lines he had said, hey, man, let's write a song called Walk Outside the Lines. And I wrote down a couple ideas and verses and things at my house. And he came over to the house and I said, well, here's some ideas. And he looked at him and he says, okay, let's use this, 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 this. And and then we went back to Major Bob, I think, if I recall, and wrote it the next next week. And uh, But we wrote every time that it rains at his house, his and Sandy's house. And... Uh, those are the only two cuts I had co-written with Garth at the time. But the Bluebird, there's the Bluebird, you know. <laughs> That's a great place. I was listening the other day to the George Jones cut, The Visit. And, I mean, you want to talk about greatest all-time singers. This is a singer that Frank Sinatra talked about that he said he just loved. So what's it like from your perspective as a songwriter when such an iconic 
legendary singer is singing your song? Well, that again is one of those things that every time I hear him, I fall out. I mean, it's just, it's, he's the, my, what I would say the epitome of singers and Frank Sinatra said he's uh, uh, Frank's uh, second favorite singer. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. (laughs) And uh, George is, so he, he can express emotion so clearly in his voice and that being such a sad song. But uh, it was funny. I wrote, co-wrote that with uh, Brad Rogers and Gene Ellsworth again, uh, same guys with all aboard. We've written a bunch of songs together. And uh, Buddy Cannon heard the song. We played it for him out at Larry Bastion's. We had all gone out there to play at the Troubadour back in 93, I think it was. And might have been 92. But in any case, Buddy, we played the song for Buddy. He said, uh, let me play that song. I'm producing George Jones's next album. So apparently he played it for George, and George wanted us to change the lyric, the first line in the chorus. Uh, looking back when we first started, never thought I'd see the day. If only I could write the pages. Uh, you know, but he didn't, the first part of that he didn't like. So we changed it to what you hear George saying, and which was fine. I have no problem <laughs> if somebody like George Jones is going to record the song and cares enough to make it more personal for him, you know, which it did. And then the song got recut on another artist, Chad Brock, but he produced Chad and Chad went into buddy's office and he said, Hey man, I got a, I got this song. I want you to hear, but it wasn't George Jones's version. It was, we had an, a female version and it was, uh, Jody Messina singing on it before she had her deal. And Buddy acted like he had never heard the song before. You know, he had already done Jones. And, and right when you get to the final line there where you give it away, Buddy started singing it to Chad, back to Chad. And he said, how do you know that song? Well, you know, so Chad did it. We had a single on that, the top 20 single with Chad Brock. And I was hoping George would release it as a single. And I know he wanted to. Him and Nancy, I think he talked about a video concept and everything. But the record label said, you already have, uh, you know, he stopped loving her today. So uh, this would have probably been like part two. So they, they nixed that idea. But uh, I was really, really pleased that he liked the song that much that he thought it was single. You know, it could have been a single. <laughs> but... Uh, Chad Brock did a beautiful version of it, and likewise, and I really love that version, too. You know, you just mentioned uh, He Stopped Loving Her Today and The Visit, and it's occurred to me a few times that you don't typically hear stories that are as sad. Now, I'm not saying that there are never sad songs in pop music and in rock music, but mm-hmm. it seems like country music Sadness is not something that is avoided as a topic. Absolutely not. And I think, you know, one of the saddest rock songs that I know is Angie by the Rolling Stones, but that's written in a kind of a country ballad style. And I know they're they're all aware of the old child ballads from, you know, the Scots-Irish, the old English ballads and the old folk songs that have come over here to the you know, to the States in the 1700s and all of these old folk songs and child ballads that came from, you know, 
the Renaissance and before, always included longing and death and murder and adultery and all of these things and the and blues and incorporate that with with the the American blues and it just. I don't know why it's not avoided, but I think it has to do with tradition, you know, Long Black Veil and things like this, which is a modern folk song, but uh, uh, been recorded so many times, you know, and it's violent. Uh, Just, I don't know why that is, but it's just, I think, rooted in the tradition of the genre. I'm hoping that we can go into the song that Nancy Griffith recorded that you co-wrote, mm-hmm. and I'm talking about Up Against the Rain. Oh, yes. One of my favorites. And I've known Nancy for many, 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 many years, uh, back from Texas days, Austin days. And we have been writing for a while, and, and uh, she was working on a new album, and Tom Uch was playing with her, and Tom said, hey... Uh, Nancy wants to get together with you, you know, we'll write, write a couple songs. And I had an idea. Towns Van Zandt was one of my dearest friends, and he had passed in 97 on New Year's Day. And this would have been about, let's see, 97. I guess it was a few years after that. And I had this idea of for Towns, a song about Towns, you know, you you ran up against the rain every day of your short life and suffered for the muse without complaining. I never heard you swear life isn't fair, but that doesn't make it right. You left the world knowing all too well what pain is. And Towns was just one of the, when he was, you know, he had problems with uh, alcohol, I have to admit, you know, but uh, when he was Towns, the real Towns, one of the kindest, sweetest individuals you'd ever meet. And I really loved the guy. And so I wanted to do some sort of tribute. So I took that idea in to Nancy and Tom Utes and over at Nancy's house. And we sat there and just wrote the rest of it. And it was it was just uh, a kind of a tribute to Towns Van Zandt. What is your most vivid memory of Towns Van Zandt? Well, uh Many, many vivid memories, but I remember the family, uh, Will, his son, and Katie Bell, his daughter, and Janine, his wife, and my family, we all went to Gulf Shores, Alabama, on vacation. And this would have been about, about 80, back in the late 80s. And uh, seeing towns there having fun with the kids, we had one of those rubber baseball bats and wiffle ball bats, and playing that on the beach and just being a fam- family man. Another instance uh, was we were out at Starwood Amphitheater, which is no longer here, but Bob Dylan was playing. And Bob Bob was one of Townsend's hugest influence. He just loved Bob Dylan, as do I, and uh, most songwriters do. And he, one of the m- most vivid memories, it was really late one night. It was Townsend's birthday, and Guy... Clark had brought over the Bob Dylan biograph box set. These were back in the days of LPs. And uh, so we listened to that and came across a song there that Towns played over and over and over. He sat there and listened to this song probably 20 times 
<laughs> of course, my mind is coming up blank with, with uh, the name of the song, but uh, it's been released several times, and uh, it plays piano, and uh, that Bob does. And Towns was just hugely in love with his song. I'm trying to remember the, the name of it. I'm looking here. He's released it on one of his bootleg series, and it was, um, yeah. Well, I'll keep it with mine. That's the title. I don't know if you're familiar with that song, Paul, but uh, if not, give it a listen. It's it's never been released other than on bootlegs. But so I have many, many memories of of towns, and uh, those are two very vivid in my mind. But uh, I can tell you more if you want to hear them. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one more. Uh, I think sure. it's definitely worth going into. Okay, I, these are things that you don't normally read about in the books that were written about Towns. He was very literate, and he was very much a reader. And he turned me on to Robert Service, for example, the poet, and uh, James Carlos Blake, uh, the Pistolier, and uh, Wildwood Boys, uh, James Carlos Blake, and... and uh, with his pistol in his hand, Amerigo Paredes. He, he's just so such a literate person, and he had records that he loved to brag on other writers. Tim Henderson from Texas, for example, he loved him. And another thing that a lot of people don't know is that Towns built a, a, a Christmas uh, train set under the Christmas tree every year for while Will was a little boy. And this was not just a train set under the tree, this was, the towns would go all out on this thing, him and Janine. It was a big L-shaped train set. It was a whole village, and we would sit down in his basement and watch this train go around for hours. It was so intricate and immaculately done, and, you know, you just wanted to get get into this and walk around yourself, you know, become a little little tiny person and walk around. It was, it was really, really cool. He was he was a loving individual, and uh, too often his name gets associated with, uh, you know, with some of his more outrageous uh, <laughs> behavior. <laughs> but he, he's, he was just a really true friend and a wonderful person. With all of these memories and all of these experiences and having your songs cut by great artists and making recordings yourself, which many people never get a chance to make a record. What would you say is the best thing about being Charlie Steffel? Well, it all boils down to family. You know, in the end, that's really all you have. The business, the music business is very fickle. And uh, my wife Janice and my kids and my grandkids, family and her parents, live right up the street from us. And, and I think family is the best thing about being me because I've got a, a lot of support there. And uh, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. You know, That's what keeps me being who I am. I have a tradition. I always end the show. I just give the guest the pulpit. I let them go wherever they want. What would you say to anyone who's tuned in? Okay. I would say if you're a songwriter, write, try to write every day. It's a different world today in, in music 
as you know, if you listen to what's on the radio, I probably in today's market, I, I probably wouldn't make it because I write more traditional country songs. But to anyone listening in to that's not a songwriter, it's always a good thing to go back and support your songwriters if if they're playing out anywhere in in the area where you live, go support them. And because it's a kind of a, we were talking about doubt earlier, you know, you can have a lot of self-doubt, especially if you're not having success. And, you know, I had my day in the sun, which, which was great. And, but I, I'm looking more to the youth, uh, the young people, uh, mentioned Conrad Fisher early, earlier and, uh, Garth's daughter, uh, Allie, Colleen, she calls herself, is a really fine singer and a developing artist. And they're, they're, these young people need our support. The young people that are writing folk and country music, and even some of the, the a lot of the crossover into to uh, hip hop and things. You know, you you just have to listen to it all and and decide what what you like and then support it. And that's what I'm trying to do: finding the artists that that I think are you know, going to contribute to country music in the future and hope to, I'm not in development or anything like that. I just write songs, but uh, try to, you know, write with some of these young people if you're a songwriter and a lot of the older writers too, don't give up on us. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's just different world today as far as uh, music, but country music's still there. Hmm. Amen. Well, I'll yeah. also say this, since you didn't. <laughs> All the listeners, they can also go to cdbaby.com. Charlie Steffel, the record is called And the Wheels Turn. Check it out. Well, thank you. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. And I appreciate this interview. And I thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. This has been a really, really wonderful interview. Thank you. Well, thank you. I have enjoyed it. I have to. Until next time. Goodbye.